For I am a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Bloody Mary, full of vodka, blessed are you among cocktails. Pray for me now, and at the hour of my death, which I hope is soon. Amen. Open up the champagne. Pop. It's my house. Come on. Turn it up. Uh. Hear a knock on the door and the night begins. Because we've done this before, so you come on in. Make yourself at my home. Tell me where you've been. Pour yourself something cold, baby. Cheers. Hello, and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal, and on today's show... We talk about the queen of brunch cocktails with an old friend of mine, writer Andrea Grimes. But first, a thought. This is the time of year when we're barraged with every possible kind of trend piece, and the drinks world is no different. I've seen many pieces that look to predict what the coming year will bring, and hell, I even wrote one. They're mostly harmless, even if they're rarely right, but I did want to mention a specific problem that I have with that type of piece, which is that they're talking about a very narrow slice of the drinking population. It's easy for me as a podcaster and writer to get caught up in what's new and exciting, and that's why I'm thankful for my job as a sommelier, because it keeps me grounded in the reality of what people are actually drinking. Sure, my guests are more adventurous than they used to be, but I still sell more Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Cabernet, Martinis, and Manhattans than anything else. Smaller, more cutting-edge places might have a different reality, but those wines and cocktails are classics for a good reason. They're usually delicious. So a trend piece that predicts the rise of a hitherto obscure varietal or spirit is really talking about a few tenths of a percent on the margins. Yes, big trends do emerge each year, and yes, some wines and spirits really do seem to capture the zeitgeist for a time, but we'd all be making money on them instead of speculating about them if we could predict those booms with accuracy. Instead of chasing trends, I'd like to see more restaurants and bars figure out their own identity, decide what they can do well, and focus on delivering those wines, beers, cocktails, or whatever they want to serve as best they can. They could start with a good Bloody Mary mix, as my guests would certainly appreciate. Joining me today on Disgorge is Andrea Grimes, a freelance journalist who lives in the Bay Area and thinks about Bloody Marys entirely too much. Andrea, thanks so much for joining me. You know, I'm I, right out of the gate. I'm not, I don't think too much is a possible quantity when it comes to thinking about Bloody Marys. <laughs> thinking, thinking about maybe, drinking possibly. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah, uh, they're delicious. They're my favorite thing. Yeah. So I want to start right off with the single, I think, most important question you can ask someone about uh, Bloody Marys when it comes to making them, which is, are you the kind of person who's like, give me whatever bizarre, like, let's say, take on a Bloody Mary? Or are you like uh, down the middle, like classic, give me tomato juice, horseradish, Worcestershire, vodka, celery, and get the get the hell out of my face? <laughs> um. So I would say like 99.9% of the time, I am a pretty staunch traditionalist. I want good tomato juice, fuckload of horseradish. I didn't ask you if I can cuss. Can I cuss? You absolutely can. Okay. This is, this is the internet. You can um, say whatever the fuck you want. Um, I didn't know if you have a family-friendly podcast oh, about eating and drinking. Yes, about drinking. Um, yes, yes. This, 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 this um, podcast about drinking is definitely for the kids. <laughs> Um, so, right. Okay. So like good tomato juice, fuckload of horseradish, Worcestershire, lemon, like celery, salt. I'm pretty like a, a, the perfect balance of those is probably going to be like my favorite Bloody Mary. Having said that, getting the perfect balance of those is so hard, particularly if you're at a place that's doing any kind of volume that like, 
if people can't get the classic right, I almost would rather them just do something stupid and like go wild because at least then I'm not like expecting something that I have really like, like high expectations for and then get disappointed. Um, so like a great classic Bloody Mary is my favorite thing. I don't mind a weird one every once in a while. So how do you feel about alternate spirits? Let's let's start with let's start with uh, where, where I think you see a lot of people go, which is like spicy, like pepper vodka, or God forbid, in my opinion, bacon vodka, or any of these other <laughs> things. Like, because to me, like, I again, I, I come down on the side of I like innovation if it's done well. It can very quickly go off the rails. But to me, like. Pepper vodka, fine. I like spicy things. But anything else, I'm, I don't know. To me, it's just like now you're making something else that's not a Bloody Mary. It's just like a tomato juice cocktail, which is sounds not yeah. as good. I, I agree with that. Um, the pepper vodka, I'm actually – I think that there's a tendency toward making Bloody Marys spicy – in a way of just like where people are just like putting fucking ghost pepper sauce and shit and like trying to make it so spicy for the sake of making it spicy. And that I don't like because then it's basically undrinkable and you're getting rid of all of the like the layers of the of the flavors that need to be there. Right. Um, so a, a reserved kind of a restrained pepper vodka. I'm fine with regular vodka. Fine. I actually think that um, like mid range vodka or to the or maybe even like slightly shitty vodka is fine in a bloody mary. I think that putting really nice vodka in a bloody mary is kind of stupid. Uh, I um, agree. <laughs> um like I always get um when I make them at home I always use uh Monopolova uh because it's like a whatever $20 bottle of vodka and it is perfectly fine, right? It, that like, is Monopolova is a really really good just all-purpose at home vodka. That's like yeah. one of the two bottles I have at home and I have like 150 bottles of other things. <laughs> I don't drink vodka much uh except maybe in Bloody Marys and but yeah. Monopolova is like the one I always buy. So good call. So yeah, so I really like that one. Um I will say so I have I have extremely strong feelings against um whiskey, aquavit, um any of those like really strong boozy boozes i do have no fucking clue why you would want to put them in a bloody mary they always taste wrong or weird like i've had gin bloody marys i like i just like i don't as you're saying like then you're having like a tomato juice cocktail it's not really a bloody mary i think that uh, sake does really well in Bloody huh. Marys. Um, in particular, uh, one time I was in a, I was in, I was back home in Texas, um, and, and uh, in my parents' town, it's dry. There's no liquor store, um, but they do sell beer and wine at the grocery store. Um, and so I was like desperate, and I found some cucumber sake um, and put that in Bloody Marys on Christmas one time, and it was actually quite delicious. Um, and one of my favorite Bloody Marys at the Hi Hat in Austin does a sake Bloody Mary um, that is also very tasty. So I would, I would, I'm cool with sake um, and pepper vodka and regular vodka. Beyond that, I think uh, I think people fly a little too close to the sun. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely some melting of wings going on. Um, <laughs> I also I have I think also a kind of an important question about Bloody Mary, not so much construction, but consumption. And that is, is in your in your eyes, is the Bloody Mary a drink that you drink like on a, let's say, completely sober? Or is it like it, for you, is it reserved as it often is for me? And I think for a lot of people, like 
I am hungover. I want to drink something, but I want to drink something that is not going to uh, make me feel worse. It's hopefully going to make me feel better. Um, I, I mean, like, I would basically drink Bloody Marys as my only consumed beverage if in fact that were literally possible um <laughs> i would drink them for breakfast i would drink them for lunch i would drink them for my afternoon tea i would drink them for dinner um they're just my favorite thing in the world um that is impractical um so i mean i end up drinking them mostly when i'm hungover purely because it's difficult to get a bloody mary at a bar outside of brunch time um, which is a shame, really, because I think the Bloody Mary deserves better than to be relegated purely to, you know, the 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. slot. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I would drink them all, all the time if I could. Like, I would be very happy having a Bloody Mary at happy hour, you know, instead of a margarita or a beer. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it is it is a little bit one of those things where I feel like if you go into a decent um, – like a decent restaurant or bar – and they and you ask for Bloody Mary at say you know dinner service or whatever, and they're like, oh, we don't, I don't have. I, I'm always a little bit baffled by that because like Bloody Mary mix, like I'm not talking about prepackaged. I'm talking about making your own. It's not really difficult. It takes five minutes, and you can make a gallon of it, and it keeps mm-hmm. for a while. It's not, and especially if it's a restaurant that does brunch, like you know they're making Bloody Mary mix every week. It, I, mm-hmm. I've, I've had that experience not so much for myself, but with people I've dined with before, and it's like. I just am always baffled. Like, what do you, you mean like you don't want to make it? I guess that's okay. <laughs> but like to say you don't have it, it's like now you're just lying to me and that is not a good thing to do if you're in the hospitality <laughs> business, especially when I know you're lying to me. Yeah. Um, I have an, one more question about a variant, which I don't know if it's a thing that you've encountered as much as I've encountered being in Seattle and very close to the homeland of these things, but the Bloody Caesar, which is like, I'm all for weird shit, but Clamato juice, like, I, I just, why? Like, I, I don't, oh, I don't get what it adds to sir. the drink. Oh my God. In my, in my homemade, my perfect homemade Bloody Mary recipe is about a third Clamato. Oh tomato. my gosh. Okay. Oh, oh yeah. No, I think it, um, so I, well, okay. So this, the other thing is micheladas, which I don't know how much that is, they are a thing on the West Pacific, in the Pacific Northwest, um, but uh, the Michelada, which is basically a beer Bloody Mary, um, is extremely popular in Texas and in Austin and the Rio Grande Valley in particular. Um, and so that's basically it's clamato, really, and beer yeah. um, and lemon and lime, some Worcestershire, some seasoned salt, maybe. It just kind of depends. Um, so I think clamato is fantastic. Um, and I think that particularly I think clamato can really make the difference if you're in like a dire situation where you only have like a bottled mix like you only have fucking like horrible zing zang or something you add a little bit of clamato to it and like it will it will really add some depth of flavor to a, an emergency bloody mary situation i love clamato i think it's fantastic uh, well there you go i guess uh <laughs> just simply not sophisticated enough for, for to appreciate you know clam juice mixed with tomato juice Seems oh weird. it's perfect oh it's so good uh, nothing against clams big fan uh, also I will say, uh, uh, my other question is, so as far as garnishes go, I feel like this is the other area where the Bloody Mary has gone like off the rails and then I don't even know, like the rails, like they got ripped up and now we're like <laughs> stranded in the middle of nowhere. Like people, in, there's this thing in Seattle and I think it's definitely not just a Seattle thing. Cause I'm pretty sure the bars that do it here have copied it where it's like, Oh, we're going to garnish your Bloody Mary with a cheeseburger or like, a fucking chicken. Yeah. Like, like, uh. like again, like. 
to me it's like i don't know it's like this weird combination of like the worst in like instagram food porn nonsense Mm -hmm. social media whatever with like the worst instincts of every like guy fieri knockoff and i'm just like like what do you what if i wanted a cheeseburger i would order a cheeseburger like i'm ordering (laughs) a cocktail you know like it's not like you order a martini and like oh here's your martini and enjoy you know a half dozen raw oysters that we've balanced on top of it like what the fuck (laughs) actually i'd be kind of interested that that. would be great Um, (laughs) anyone uh, out there listening who owns a bar do that the garnish thing, the garnish um, extravagance, I think, is completely silly. Um, I mean, it's obviously like a good gimmick and it works for, you know, publicity, marketing purposes or whatever. Um, so it, it, I mean, it's dumb for lots of reasons. If you need to put a fucking roast chicken on your Bloody Mary, your Bloody Mary almost certainly sucks, right? Like there should be like the, the Bloody Mary should be the star of the Bloody Mary, um, not, you know, the slice of pizza um, that you've shoved on it, which is just horrible. I think I think garnish wise. So I think for an average length brunch service at a regular place, I think getting through two Bloody Marys is my normal, I would say. And I think that's a fair amount for an average brunch service for serious drinkers like myself. Um, I think the garnish should be enough that I have an I have plenty to nibble on between courses um, and not so much that like I'm you know just taking the toothpick out and like putting it on my napkin or whatever because like I can't get through the block of cheese that that is on there right Um, so I think it should be I think celery is pretty essential Um, and I you know I like a I like a sizable cocktail pick with probably you know anything from a pickled okra a pickled green bean I, I, a, a cube of cheddar cheese never goes awry, and I don't mind a little bit of beef jerky or a Slim Jim. I'm not crazy about a whole slice of bacon because it gets soggy, um, and soggy bacon is disgusting. Um, so, yeah, I think it should be like a kind of a little nibble, like a palate cleanser. Like you should have as like a – think of it as kind of the ginger – of sushi is your is your garnish i think for a bloody mary a little just a little nibble so to me i think i I think less in terms of specific items and i think more about sort of the visual aesthetic of when the drink comes to you so to me like there are three elements that you need i think i agree that celery is more or less indispensable and the only time i'm willing to give up on celery is if there is another similarly large green vegetable item Mm, so yeah so i I, my my personal favorite is pickled asparagus which is delicious yeah um, and makes you immediately feel like you're in a much classier joint no matter where it is um (laughs) and pickled green beans are great um i also think there it's so along with that there has to be like a pickled element so whether that's olives the aforementioned pickled green beans or asparagus, mm-hmm. um, you can go crazy, and it needs citrus. Like I need a lo- a lemon, preferably a lime yeah. if I have to, because yeah. there's also this issue to me with like the no matter how it's made, I always like a little bit of that sort of tart citrus because inevitably most people's like tomato juice is you know canned tomato juice, which is kind of on the sweet side, which uh-huh. is fine, but I need a little bit of an accent uh, like to cut against that. So. I, to me, it's like you want the Bloody Mary to come over and you want to like you want to see it coming. You want to see something sticking up out of the top of the glass. You want to mm-hmm. feel like, yeah, you've got a little something else because when you're ordering a Bloody Mary, you're basically saying like, 
I'm ordering a I'm ordering brunch and then I'm also ordering a drink that is ostensibly a meal. So <laughs> I'm just fucking going for it because I'm either hungover or I'm hungry or I uh-huh. don't give a fuck. And uh, and so I want it to look that way without it being like too in my face or too evident to everyone else at the table or in the restaurant that like I have some sort of horrible problem and therefore I need <laughs> you know I need a like I need a, a fried chicken sandwich on top right. of my my Bloody Mary. <laughs> Um, yes, entirely. I have also, um, at a few places had, um, in place of the celery, um, a nice robust, uh, like green onion or scallion, uh, which is kind of interesting. I would say like, those are not great if the Bloody Mary mix is very horseradishy. Cause then you just got like a lot, uh, like a lot of that, like side jaw tinge oniony, like, yeah, it's maybe not super nice to anyone who might want to talk to you afterwards either. (laughs) Right. But uh, they're, like, surprisingly delicious if the mix is on the sweeter side. Um, I had a Bloody Mary in San Francisco a few years ago that had um, just a little bit of sesame oil in it. Oh, interesting. Um, and that was really nice. And, and it had a green onion in it. And the, the green onion and the sesame oil really lent a nice kind of Asian uh, twang to it. It was lovely. Oh, yes, that famous Asian twang. Um, <laughs> so... I also have uh, sort of a, a separate uh, – well, it's not a separate thought exactly, but it's there's this other way of enjoying Bloody Marys, of course, which is not necessarily out at brunch, but it's making them at home. And you already kind of mentioned your own your own mix, which, in, which includes um, obviously uh, Clamato. But I feel like like where do you come down – like if you go to someone's house and they're like, oh, yeah, let's like make – we're going to make Bloody Marys. Or, like we're going to have like a Bloody Mary bar, which is a thing that happens and is mm-hmm. can be great or also terrible depending on who's doing it. Like – is it hard for you to be like, oh, God, like, I'm going to just trust that you know what you're doing? Or do you like, I'll bring my own mix. Thank you. <laughs> um, I I don't think any of my friends are so stupid that they would attempt to make me a Bloody Mary. Um, I think they know better. Uh, if I... And if I somehow ended up at a at a non-public location where someone was trying to make me a Bloody Mary, I... Ooh, ah, that would be difficult. Uh, I could probably, probably grimace through it if it was passable. It would be difficult to not critique it. This is like making me actively nervous thinking about the prospect <laughs> of somebody making me a Bloody Mary who wasn't a professional uh, or myself. Um, but no, I mean, like my my solution to this, my workaround for this is basically, you know, if somebody is having a barbecue or a football party or whatever. Like I am just like my contribution to this party is going to be the Bloody Mary mix. Um, and I will just bring it, uh, myself because it's, um, there's nothing worse than getting to somebody's house and like seeing that fucking like generic brand Bloody Mary mix on the table and like knowing that you've got four quarters of football in front of you and it's going to be you in that bottle. And (laughs) it's awful. (laughs) <laughs> it, it's probably even better when they're like Andrea we know you love Bloody Marys look we got this for you and you're just like oh, oh no oh it's terrible no I'll just bring my own I actually I will I say just that, like travel with a cooler or yeah, something seems cool like a it. good idea I will say that uh, from a personal perspective that that is galling the the more galling thing to me is margarita mix which because like oh yes it's oh. even it's even worse because it's like making margaritas is not hard like it's, right 
like three ingredients <laughs> and some ice. Like it's uh-huh. not it's not hard to do. Like Bloody Mary mix, I get it. You have to kind of understand. You have to have like who has like celery salt lying around. Lots of people right. don't have Worcestershire. Like you got to kind of understand proportions. You got to grate some fucking horseradish or buy mm-hmm. or you know buy or you know jarred horseradish or whatever. Like those are it's a labor. And for those mm-hmm. people who care, it's not a big deal. But for a lot of people, it's like eh, whatever. There's this thing on sale for six dollars at the grocery store. We'll call that good. Right. Um, Speaking of variants or of uh, kind of going in a different direction, have you had any like high concept, like not not like, oh, we're going to put like, uh, you know, eight random ingredients in a Bloody Mary, but like this is like a fancy cocktail bar Bloody Mary. Yes. Um, and, and how um, has that gone? It was so, okay. So this was at a place in Austin called Vox Table. Um, and the guy at the local Alt Weekly had posted it was either in the newspaper that week or I don't know what it was anyway the the operative ingredient that got my attention was celery foam and I was like this is fucking ridiculous this is offensive who is fucking with my bloody mary this is a travesty upon a travesty it is awful and my husband and I went there for brunch like the next day and it was goddamned delicious (laughs) and I I was just like, I can't complain about this thing. It's amazing. This is very, like, I mean, it was not only, like, it was, a, I mean, it was a good restaurant. We actually had, like, some of the best bacon I've ever had there. Um, but it was, uh, it was just a really nicely balanced mix. The bartender obviously knew what they were doing. Um, but the celery foam was actually a really lovely, light little floof on top of the beverage. Um, and it came with, um, this I did, I did think was a little silly, but it worked. It came with a little pipette of Tabasco. Oh my. Um, so you could like, you know, drop dollop your own Tabasco in there. Uh, and it came with, uh, a little, uh, a little, what do you call those? Um, the little tiny cans or, um, tiny, uh, bottles of high life. Those little short ones. The like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, it came with one of those for a back, which was kind of fun. Um, so it was like kind of elevated, but also unelevated. Uh, and I was just totally wrong about that celery foam. Like it was really fucking good. Uh, it's one of the best ones I've ever had. Oh, there you go. So I will say like, I tend, it's one of those recipes that I, or concepts that I personally don't like to mess around with, but we did, I did once when I was bartending more play around, we had a we got in a bunch of uh, the kitchen in the restaurant I was working at. Got in a bunch of fresh tomatoes, um, as we always do at that time of year. And uh, they were trying to figure out sort of like they were going to do a few different things with it. And one of them was basically they were making this tomato water, which is basically like you kind of let the you kind of juice the tomatoes, but you strain them through cheesecloth, so you don't get really any color. You just get like clear liquid. Mm. Um, and we made like a basically a bloody mary, but like served up in a in a martini glass. Uh-huh. Um, with like only so I got like that celery water. Um, I think we must have figured out. I'm trying to. It's just years ago, so I I don't have the recipe in my head. Um, and it was like this very like you. It looked like a. It wasn't quite a martini. Like it was you know had enough kind of going on in it that it wasn't like clear like a gin or vodka martini would be. Obviously mostly vodka though. Uh, and it was like we would serve those to people and they would just be like, wait, where am I? Like this is amazing. <laughs> But it was like it was so weird because it had so much flavor and you would think looking at it like it would people would be like, wait, this is like a Bloody Mary served up like they kind of right. like people expected when you put it on the menu that it was like going to be like this, you know, just like a red, you know, martini, like chunky tomato, whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, no, that sounds lovely. Um, yeah, it and was I, really I, good. It was like a pain in the ass to make. Uh, it took a well, lot of sure. work. So it was like on our list for two weeks and then we we're like, yeah, we're done yeah. with this. But it was fun yeah. while it lasted. 
I put, I mean, I put fresh tomatoes, if they're really ripe and delicious, I will put them in my homemade Bloody Mary mix. Um, but I think a thing that most people don't realize, because most people are accustomed to bottled Bloody Mary mix or to just buying tomato juice or V8 or whatever at the store, is that tomato juice, like fresh tomato juice is, is like, it's like brownish yellow, right? Yeah. Like it's pink. It's not red. Um, and so I find that like, I've posted pictures of Bloody Marys at restaurants, which were obviously made with fresh tomato juice. And I've had like Instagram commenters be like, why is your Bloody Mary such a weird color? Like, oh, that looks gross. Like, no, it's actually far more delicious, uh, to have fresh tomato juice in your Bloody Mary, but it's not going to be that like bright red, you know, strawberry color that bottled juice is. Yeah. The color that's uh, enhanced with uh, you know, die. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's true. It's, it's definitely, it definitely caught people off guard, but was, was, and it, and it does. Yeah. If we do it with fresh tomato juice, it does. Uh, but it's also like, I think people kind of expect that sort of a little bit sweeter, a little bit more kind of also like saltier, just kind of like processed taste that they can't put their finger on, but is definitely there. Um, and you know, it's like ketchup, right? Like you kind of, I, I can sort of turn my nose up at it, but I get why it appeals to people and like it's what they're familiar with. And when, you know, you try and sell them, you know, tomato relish or something, they're just like, mm -hmm. what is this? I want ketchup. Give me Heinz. Um, <laughs> sadly. Um, so so changing gears a little bit from the Bloody Mary. I know this is this is like uh, leaving your uh, your uh, familiar ground, but uh, having having relatively recently moved to the Bay Area, are there are there like significant differences in just drinking culture that you've noticed from there uh, versus uh, Texas? I've noticed that beers are nine goddamn dollars. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, that's everything. <laughs> um, uh, so I, it's, I mean, it's January, right? So I know it's like the foggy rainy season, especially. Um, I really miss patios. Uh, patios in Austin and Dallas, which are really the places that I truly came into my drinking identity. Um, I, they're just perfect. I mean, and, and when the weather is nice, um, as it, it will, I think eventually be here on the little Island I live on. Um, I really, I really would like a nice patio to sit upon. I haven't really found one yet. So if your listeners have recommendations for patios in Alameda, um, that would be great. Uh, I find obviously people are really fucking into their IPAs here, um, which I could do without, to be honest with you. Um, I like some. I can I can have one IPA every other month, and I'm fine. I don't get the like the the hop craze entirely. Um, yeah, I don't know. I need to do I need to do some more thorough bar hopping, I think. Um I've been surprised with the lack of dive bars in the East Bay in particular. Um they're here, but they're kind of hard to find versus like I feel like in San Francisco there are many, many dive bars and in Austin is just like fucking crawling with them. Um so yes, those are my initial observations. Interesting. Yeah, I think uh one of the big things, I mean that that West Coast uh, sort of IPA lust. I, one of the few things I've written, I've, I've only written a few things in my life that got a lot of hate mail. And one was basically <laughs> just me for however long as my column was just ripping IPAs. And, and like, <laughs> I, 
I mean, I wasn't doing it because I was like, oh, let's generate some controversy. I was like, these are dumb. Like, mm-hmm. especially like it got to, it was kind of like what you're talking about weirdly with like, what well, is that? Not weirdly. It's a very similar, I think, sort of mentality. It's like what you're talking about with the Bloody Marys that are like, let's make a ghost pepper Bloody Mary. Like, mm-hmm. There's this idea of like, if we just hit you with all the flavor, then you'll be like, this is good. And it's like, I, right. have, I don't need like to see how many. IBUs you can fit into a beer before it's like no longer (laughs) even remotely consumable like I'm a huge advocate in general and almost all things especially drinking related of balance and so Uh like if your thing if the only thing I taste is like if if it just smells like you know I stuck my like if it just smells aggressively citrusy and it tastes like just nothing but bitterness like Mm. and it's eight and a half percent alcohol like what like what the fuck are we doing here like that's just (laughs) it's a science experiment it's not really a good beer and and it is a thing that I think is like very slowly. Well, I think in the brewing community, it's a little bit moving out of vogue. Like I think people are like, ah, eh, you know, whatever. We've gone there, we've done that. There's still a ton of of mm-hmm. hop lust, and there's you know huge devotion to you know every possible kind of IPA. And you know now you see these ridiculous like quote unquote session IPAs, which are like, let's try and make an IPA, but it's like lighter. I'm like, you know, what you could just make a beer. Like don't 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 call it an IPA. Put less hops in it, and then like it'll just be a good beer. Like uh, uh-huh. that's a good place to start instead of like let's. We don't want to give up on all these hops, but we also understand that people aren't going to drink six of our beers if they're you know eight and a half percent alcohol. So how can we like cut the alcohol out? But like just like no, just make a good beer. And people who drink nothing but IPAs drink something besides IPAs every once in a while. You will be yep. better for it. Um, it is interesting about the the dive bar thing. I think. You know, I mean, my my just uh, supposition is that like the the really really rapid change of the sort of face and landscape of the of the whole Bay Area and the East Bay, mm-hmm. almost in a way more than San Francisco, uh, yeah. has probably caused a lot of that. I mean, there's just my uh, I've been visiting you know the that area for a long time, um, and my sister has lived in the East Bay for the last have five or six years and every time I go down and visit it's like it is amazing the the amount to which it's changed um and obviously the prices and the you know kind of incredible spikes in rent and things like that have a lot to do with it I think just the 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 culture you know dive bar culture is is uh is its own thing and it and it requires a certain kind of population a certain sort of aesthetic to sustain it and Mm -hmm. you know whether it's dive bar because that's the only place that certain people can afford to drink or it's because that's the sort of aesthetic that a certain person craves. Like, yeah, it doesn't, that doesn't shock me. Although I think, uh, you know, there probably are a few out there and we'll see if a listener can, can chime in with some recommendations. So yes, indeed. Is it, is it also like the, I would guess that the other big change is that like, I mean, this is going to sound possibly a little bit uh, biased, but like, do, did you go from like, Oh, I guess, yeah, maybe we should have wine to like that. I feel like it's also a big part of the scene and obviously in the Bay Area, like you're very close to much of the California wine industry. Do people like talk sure. to you about wine in a way that you're like, I guess I got to talk about that now? Um, yes. I, so my husband and I started getting into wine on purpose last year um, after I happened to watch that Soham documentary on Netflix and was like, this is hilarious. I have to know what these people are like obsessed with. Um, and so we've done a little, a little wine self education, which basically is like, I would just go to the wine shop and be like, tell me what to buy. And then the people would tell me what to buy and I would buy it. Um, 
I do. I am excited about being so close to Napa and Sonoma and all those things. We did a day trip up there with our friends um, who came to visit last week. Um, it was really fun. I do find that um, it's it's really entertaining and interesting um, to find so many like to have so many casual interactions with people who like care a lot about wine, know a lot about wine and have like good wine recommendations, just like average folks. Right. Like that is super like in Texas, if you know about wine, it's because you've made the effort. Right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like here it's, you know, I will just casually be talking to somebody at the bar or like, even like, I think I was in line at the post office or something and somebody was like shipping a box and they're just like chatting about, you know, they went to the winery last weekend and it was, really good but they're gonna go back next time and try this other one um so that is fun like you know people kind of people almost talk about it here the way you would talk about like a local sports team yeah uh which is kind of cool yeah yeah it's interesting i think you know especially with with uh with california um and you know the Napa and sonoma areas in particular it's like it is so a part of um yeah it's a it's a cultural piece there that is that is interesting and and feels like very connected to just sort of what it what it is to be a resident of that area, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But it is bizarre because I will also tell you, like, as someone who works in the wine industry, going down there, and especially like you know, I've gone to both Napa and Sonoma a few different times, and and you kind of have you know they're they're different, and depending on where you go, you can have very different experiences. But there is something about the like very large, very well known winery estate that has just like busload after busload after mm-hmm. busload of people on tours rolling up, and it's just like. You know, it's just weird. It's it's like a vaguely kind of like adult theme park kind of vibe that I just <laughs> I find like I find a little bit and it's not just in those places. It happens in, you know, in lots of wine regions. Um, but I find it it's like so it is so weird because it is just like, uh, you know, I love wine and, and I and I I enjoy sort of the process of tasting it and going in and exploring it. And I understand that, you know, many people are not interested in taking it as seriously as I take it. If they were, I wouldn't have a job. But, um, <laughs> but I do find it strange that like for some people it's like, it's like, Oh yeah, we went to that winery and we had like six wines in 10 minutes and then we got back on the bus. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. okay. Like, I get <laughs> like, why did you even go there? Like I, you know, I don't, I'm not saying you gotta spend three hours and tour the grounds and, you know, sip everything with, you know, with, you know, utmost, the utmost thought sure. and attention. But like, if you're just like line up the the flight, let me pound them, and I'm gonna get back on on the tour bus. Then it's sort of like I don't know. You could have just drank at home. Uh, anyhow, well, and I feel like that also. I mean, that kind of. I mean, for me, that type of like cattle call wine experience, um, like devalues what I enjoy about even bad wine, which is like, I find it interesting about where it's from and why does it taste this way and who's the family that makes it. And that like, you know, like I don't, I actually, I, it's less about whether like a particular wine is to my taste, although it's great when I find one that I really like, but I think of opening a bottle, finding a good bottle, learning about, you know, the, the winery, that kind of thing as, as like, you know, reading an interesting magazine article or reading a nice book or whatever, you know, like it's an educational kind of sociocultural experience. I don't know why you just want to slam, you know, six, you know, tiny tasters down and then hop on to the next place because that's, you know, it's just less interesting that way. Yeah. And I can tell you this too. I've been to a number, not even at wineries. I've been to a few different, like large scale, like open to the public for like, you know, 
people pay tic- pay money to get a ticket and come in and taste a bunch of wines from a bunch of different producers. And inevitably, there are people just getting shit faced. And to me, mm-hmm. it's like for one, like the wine, like the wine hangover for me at least is easily the worst. Like if you just yes. get if oh, you get to the far. point where you're like <laughs> if you get to the point where you're like I can't stand up and all you've been drinking is wine, especially red wine in most of uh-huh. these cases, like you are going to not. Like you are going to really, really regret yourself, like regret all the choices you've made up until that moment um, the next day, which is, you know, whatever. People make their own choices. They're adults. It's also just like there's something unseemly to me about like really drunken people who are, you know, like I'm 33 and to see people who are like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years older than me, like like slurringly asking a winemaker who spent like years on this wine like i have some more red wine and then just like (laughs) sloshing back i just am like i'm just watching this whole interaction i'm just like oh my god how do you i am amazed that they don't just say no i would be like no it's not very dignified well and it's just like how it's 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 like it's so insulting to the person who made that wine especially because in Uh those cases you really are asking like literally the winemaker not just some person who works in a tasting room or not just a person who works for the winery like i there are a lot of those cases where it's like the winemaker you know because it's a smaller winery or they take those events seriously they want to you know they Mm want to be there to see their you know to interact with their public etc and i'm just like man it's like that's like that's like going up i don't know i'm trying to think of a good analogy on the spot and it's failing me but it's like you know it's like going up to um you know, it's like going to the symphony and go like drunkenly going up to the doctor and being like, play Freebird! <laughs> like, the fuck is wrong with you? Like, comport yourself like an adult, which I feel like is the thing I should say to people more often in my life because it comes up so often. I'm just like, <laughs> how are you an adult? But that's another podcast, I think. We can, we can revisit another time. Indeed. Anyhow, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Great chatting with you. And, uh, Keep uh, keep an eye out for some interesting Bloody Marys in uh, the Bay Area and, and uh, report back, I guess. And you. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks again to Andrea Grimes for joining me on Disgorged. You can find Andrea on Twitter at Andrea Grimes. And if you're doing the whole social media thing, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Zjebal. That's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E. Or on the internet at VineTradings.com. That's Vine with a V. Thanks again for listening to Disgorged. And cheers. <laughs>